0: Today we're going to read from Lamentations chapter 2, the first eight verses. Again, every Sunday we're just choosing a selection from the um, from each chapter. I don't know if you noticed in the email that was sent out on Friday, but um, I mentioned last week that Each of the chapters of Lamentations, except for the fifth one, is written in the poetic form of an acrostic. That is, each verse starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And I have uh, been able to find an English translation of the book of Lamentations that does the same thing. And if you go to Trinity's website and click on sermons at the top, then you will see Lamentations translation as a button. If you click on that, you'll be able to read through the English version with each first word of every verse uh, following our alphabet. It's, it's not exactly um, uh, concurrent with Hebrew because Hebrew has different number of letters and so forth. But uh, every week I'll be filling that on. So if you'd like to do that, it's a different translation, number one, but it just shows how that acrostic form uh, works. I'm going to read Lamentations chapter two, the verses one to eight. It should show up on your screen. If you have a Bible, feel free to grab that and follow along also. This is a section that is um, said or written by what we call in Lamentations, the narrator. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe, and he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. If you're familiar at all with the book of Job, you remember Job was this righteous man who was put under suffering by uh, Satan, God explicitly allowed Satan to go and to trouble him and to persecute him and and destroy his life on every level. And yet the book of Job tells us that Job, even when his wife encouraged him to do so, did not curse God. He accepted without any complaint at all what God had given to him through Satan. Satan. Lamentations does not do that. Lamentations tells us a whole different story than Job. And that's one of the wonderful things about the Bible, I think, that it, that it presents all kinds of different perspectives on life. From one of the books that I'm using for Lamentations by Kathleen O'Connor, she says this, The verbs particularly of this chapter, accumulate as if the narrator is overcome with his own fury. Anger pours from him in verbal brilliance as he tries to understand the devastation he sees. And you remember, of course, that this takes place in the, in the years right after the total destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. I go back to the quote he the, the narrator the author no longer blames jerusalem instead he charges god with violent abuse of the city woman zion the narrator here looks up to the heavens and shakes his fist and accuses god He says, God has swallowed us up. You've done it. You've broken down the strongholds. You've brought everything down to the ground in dishonor. You've cut us down in fierce anger. You've withdrawn your right hand. You've burned like a flaming fire, consuming all around You've taken your bow and you've bent it and you've aimed it at us and you've killed all of those whom we loved. You have become like an enemy. You have swallowed us up. You have laid us waste. You have scorned us. You have delivered our palaces and our gold and silver into the hand of the enemy. You have laid us in ruins. You did not restrain your hand from destroying us. You have thrown down without pity. The narrator in this section charges God with infidelity, with lack of of integrity and with loss of self-control. And he says, God, your motives are anger, rage, and an overflowing burning. I quote from O'Connor again, God is mad, out of control, swirling around in unbridled destruction. The world as the people of Zion know it has come to an end. And in this chapter, it's not Zion's sin that's the cause. Her guilt is hardly mentioned. The narrator's charges are against God alone. It's divine behavior that obsesses him. And God's behavior Not Zion's, is reprehensible. It's just extremely strong language that we have here of accusation against God. This is not language that in our culture and in our time we would use in almost any circumstances. It certainly does reflect the culture and the context and the way of speaking of its time. And, of course, this kind of language rises up out of a destruction the likes of which none of us has ever experienced. Place us in a similar situation and we might express ourselves in this way. It is true that this kind of destruction isn't that far away from us. Not that we've experienced it. But there are people whom we know who are still alive, who were alive during the Second World War. The millions and millions and millions of people that were killed, especially the Holocaust, those, those awful death camps where whole families were shipped to, separated and gassed, and the piles of shoes and the piles of clothes and the wedding rings. And almost all of us remember Vietnam and the massacres that happened there. And all of us probably remember Rwanda and Sarajevo and certainly New York September 11 2001 and Baghdad shock and awe 2003 and Yemen so what doesn't take us much work to be able to see the pictures or to see the films and see this kind of devastation. And if you read anything about people who've suffered through these things, you may hear this same kind of language. But it's also true that we each have our own suffering. And while that suffering might not compare in a measurable sense, to the suffering of Jerusalem, the Nazi gas chambers, Rwanda, Sarajevo, or Baghdad. Each one of us is going through our own suffering. And your suffering is your suffering. And we don't compare it to anyone else's suffering. It is yours and it is painful and it hurts and it's likely every it's likely true that every single one of us listening today has suffering in our life that perhaps if we dared we might say these same kind of words God, I do not deserve this. I have done nothing. I'm not perfect. But I have not done anything to deserve this illness or this relationship break or this financial loss or whatever it may be. And Lamentations gives us the opening, leads us in the way to be perfectly and brutal, brutally honest with God in the middle of the night, or whenever it is that your pain is at its deepest. Because what does the narrator of Lamentations invite us to do? And he invites us to do something in chapter 2, verse 19, which we're going to project. Arise, cry out in the night, at the beginning of the night watches, Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for for hunger at the head of every street. The narrator invites Jerusalem to get up, to cry out in the night watches, to pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. To lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. He invites Zion and He invites us into conversation with God. He takes God seriously. With all the questions that there might be, how this God, this God of, that we call God of love, the God of the covenant, the God who said he he's relates to us like a husband relates to his wife. How this God could allow or even, as Lamentation says it, bring about this disproportional and terrible suffering upon his children. He takes the context seriously and he says, come. Tell him about it. Tell him about your suffering. Accuse him if that's what you feel. Be willing to say, you know, this is just not fair. This child that I love was born with this. This person had this accident happen to him. My child went to school one morning and that afternoon he got shot in the classroom. How could you let this happen? Express the fact that what you thought you knew about God is crumbling and disintegrating. The words of Lamentations, and I quote O'Connor again, shows us how to do theology honestly, to take life's ingredients, and to hold fast to the concrete realities of communal life. Every generation of believers must engage in this task, or else they make of the living one an idol, a portrait of themselves, or a mere artifact of history. If we are not willing to be honest to God, then our relationship with him is in some ways just a superficial sham. And I was struck this week as I was thinking about this and thinking about how to connect it to the story of Advent. And I remembered that story, not just a story, it actually happened, about Jesus on the cross, perfectly innocent, never done anything to deserve anything evil. Hanging on that cross between heaven and earth, the nails in his hands and his feet beaten to a pulp, abused and scorned by by the world of his time. And he's on that cross and he says words that I think echo lamentations. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would you do this? What have I done that would cause you to do this? And I look through the gospel stories. That, that um, word of Jesus on the cross only appears in two of the four gospels. It appears in Matthew and Mark. And it is the last word of Jesus on the cross in those gospels. The last words of Jesus in Luke are, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And Jesus certainly said that. And the last words of Jesus in John, on the cross in John, are, It is finished, and he certainly said that. But in Matthew and and Mark, I never thought about this before. But the last words of Jesus on this cross echo lamentations. My God, my God, why? Why is this happening? I quote again from O'Connor. Lamentations leaves us with the beautifully culturally conditioned poetry that emerged from frightful destruction, pain, and suffering. These words blame God unequivocally. They are not silent. They are not denying. They are not accepting the blame and guilt that the abused often expresses before the abusers. The book's speakers stand up. They resist. They shout in protest and fearlessly risk further antagonizing the deity. They do not accept abuse passively. They are voices of a people with nothing left to lose, and they find speech. They face horror upon horror, and they resist, and listen to this, unsatisfactory explanations offered by their theological tradition. The result is a vast rupture in their relationship with God, yet they hold to Him. And in that holding, they clear, new, they clear space for new ways to meet God. Because now, there's a piece of honesty that's come into the relationship that hasn't been there before. And I wonder if Advent, as we wait as we wait in the darkness, and as we wait with the suffering that each one of us feel that can sometimes weigh so heavily upon us, that Advent is the time to, number one, be honest, and in that honesty, to clear space in our lives for God as He comes to us in Jesus.